This episode is presented by Fleet Feet. A quick note before we start. This episode contains discussions about mental health and mentions suicide. If you're struggling and you need help or know someone who does, we included a list of resources in the show notes for this episode. And through being an athlete at tribal school, I learned that I was not only representing myself as a competitor, but I am bearing the traumas of indigenous youth and indigenous athletes in Washington. Mm. And that's where it became more than running. It became representing my people and standing up to these stereotypes, people doubting me, people thinking I'd already lost the race, mm. only to come up and win it. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Allison Mariella Desir, and this is Out and Back, a podcast exploring how Black, Indigenous, and other people of color are reclaiming space in the outdoors. Each episode, you'll hear their stories, and we'll get outside with them in their element. We're headed to the University of Washington with runner and activist Rosalie Fish. If you know anything about Rosalie, it is probably the red handprint painted on her face. She runs with it to bring visibility to the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and Two-Spirit people. As she will tell you, it is a cause that is centuries old and very near to her as a member of the Cowlitz tribe who grew up on the Muckleshoot Reservation. She turned her love of running into activism, and on this episode, we ran, we talked, and we went out on Elliott Bay with Rosalie's canoe family. If you want to see Rosalie and I running, talking, and canoeing, check out our video series. There's a link to it in the show notes, or you can find it at crosscut.com video. I would love it if we could start by having you tell me about yourself and how you identify. Thank you. Um, my name's Rosalie Fish. I'm a 21-year-old um, athletic advocate. Mm. I run for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Two-Spirit. I also am a member of the Muckleshoot and Cowlitz tribes, Mm. and I grew up on the reservation. Um, I'm an older sister, Mm. I'm a queer woman, and I'm an athlete at the University of Washington. Mm. Lots of titles. (laughs) Let's dig in. Um, Let's start with what was life like growing up on the Muckleshoot reservation? I had the privilege of being a part of such a strong and connected community. Mm. I grew up having so much cousins, aunties, Mm. uncles, um, a lot of extended family that was always surrounding me. Mm. I had a lot of siblings, um, lots of family gatherings where Mm. it was large amounts of family rather than nuclear family. Mm. And I was constantly at community events where I was seeing the same friends and family throughout the day and throughout the the course of the week Mm. where we got to come together and do like traditional songs or traditional dances or even come together to eat mm. and things like that. What impact do you think that, that has made on you, you know, that connection um, that you had around you all the time? By being a part of a community that's not only strong as far as interconnectedness, but also in culture, mm. it gave me a sense of not only belonging, but empowerment, mm. knowing that I could only feel confident not only in who I am, but my part that I play in my community and specifically like how my community makes me who I am. Mm. Uh, I feel like I can't be disconnected from them because my role in my community is such a key part of my identity. Mm. That's so beautiful and unlike the way that I think in the United States 
many people think of family. When did you start running? Back in middle school, I started every so often, uh, mainly just due to like the peer pressure of my dad. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, I disconnected from it quite a bit once I got to uh, my freshman year in high school. Mm. And that's when I started to really notice the symptoms of my undiagnosed bipolar. So I would have hypomanic episodes and then they would be followed with really bad um, low or depressive episodes. Mm. And in those depressive episodes, it was really difficult for me to find something to love about myself. Wow. And running helped me find that. Mm. Um, it was only later that I learned that 50% of people with bipolar disorder will actually attempt to commit suicide in their right. lifetimes. And it's something that I had dealt with personally. Mm. And being able to go out on a run and find ways to appreciate my body mm. and appreciate the world around me. It also gave me a really good routine where mm. it was something I could depend on even though my mood was pretty erratic. Thank you for sharing that. It, it really connects to my, a lot of my story where I struggled with depression and anxiety and really felt like I had no reason for living. Mm -hmm. um, and I found running and it connected me. One, it got me out the door, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it also, it connected me to other people. It connected me to an appreciation of the outdoors and nature. So the connection between mental and physical health is, is such a powerful, powerful piece. Yeah. When did running become more than just running for you? It was when I had actually enrolled at Muckleshoot Tribal School, following up in my sophomore year of high school. And I had decided, you know, I've been running on my mental health and I've been getting a little bit better. And mm. now I wanted to challenge myself and actually join the track team and mm. compete. I showed up to practice at Muckleshoot Tribal High School and I was basically one of the only people there. <laughs> um, and they threw me in a uniform and they're like, oh yeah, we finally got someone. <laughs> Get her on the track. <laughs> and You didn't know you were starting the track team. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it was actually really fun to be able to challenge myself. You know, mm. I hadn't really anticipated that all this running I had been doing for my mental health would actually pay off like on the track in a mm. competition. Although the one thing that came with running from Muckleshoot Tribal School was wearing this uniform mm. that wholly represented that I come from a tribal reservation. Mm. And what I learned through competing as an athlete for a tribal school was the preconceptions of me as an athlete because I was tribal. Mm. I would show up to meets and the rivaling schools would perceive me as a joke. Mm. I wouldn't be entered into um, invitational meets even though I had the seated time. And they told me it's because I've never heard of Muckleshoot Tribal School before. Mm. We even at one point found graffiti in the women's bathroom. And there were offensive slurs such as Indian Savage wow. and live off the government. Wow. on the same stalls that my siblings use. And through being an athlete at tribal school, I learned that I was not only representing myself as a competitor, but I am bearing the traumas of indigenous youth and indigenous athletes in Washington. Mm. And that's where it became more than running. It became representing my people and standing up to these stereotypes, people doubting me, people thinking I'd already lost the race mm. only to come up and win it. <laughs> 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 and, you know, that's what really fueled me mm. was to show up and say Muckleshoot Tribal School is so much more than you could ever imagine. I love that. I love that you essentially started this track team. <laughs> but then more than that, 
when people come after you rather than, you know, decide to quit the team, which I think would have been perfectly reasonable and understandable, you decide, all right, well, you know, and I'm actually the best there is. So the handprint. Many people, including myself, you came onto my radar because of um, the handprint and the meaning behind that. Can you tell me about that first time that you decided to place the handprint over your mouth, what that means, um, and your advocacy work? Yeah. So... Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Two-Spirit has been a huge part of my community since as long as I can remember. Um, knowing that I was in middle school, even in elementary school, I understood that not only was I othered, but I was a target for violence and victimization. My parents had told me that there were little girls like me who would go missing. And it wasn't, they didn't even have to tell me. I would see the missing persons um, posters, there would be people in my life who had just disappeared. And I heard nothing about what had happened. Mm. It something that really weighed heavy on my mind mm. for a long time. And it really made me feel hopeless mm. until I saw Jordan Marie Daniel in my senior year of high school. She was featured in Indian Country Today, mm. which, you know, is a big deal. A big deal. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was a photo of her running the Boston Marathon, and she had a red handprint and then the initials MMIW down her leg. It was her using her platform as an athlete, a professional athlete at that, mm. to raise awareness and to demand attention to this crisis that has been plaguing our communities. Mm -hmm. It made me feel so seen because mm -hmm. not only was it my first time seeing a Native woman who was a professional runner, Wow. That, that was already mind-blowing to me. Wow. And then the fact that she was representing her community um, with such strength and such dignity, it completely opened a new world. Mm. I realized that I needed to be doing so much more. And mm. she had shown me what I need to do. And all I had to do at this point was just step up. Wow. So I messaged Jordan <laughs> Marie Daniel. I told her, I want to ask your permission to follow in your footsteps and use my state championship meet to run mm. for a missing and murdered indigenous woman in two-spirit. And once again, I want to <laughs> say, not necessarily a typical response, an amazing response, right? But it's, that's really the activist that was inside of you <laughs> even before you started being an activist, right? That you saw this and you said, yes, I need to do that. That's powerful. <laughs> As we can guess, she responded. I fangirled, you know, <laughs> I was like, I can't believe it. And she gave me her permission and she was so supportive. And that was just like the last little push I needed. And I decided I don't care what it takes. Um, I looked in the rule books because I knew once I put on that handprint, there were going to be people who wanted me disqualified and they were going to do anything they could to make that happen. Wow. I was fortunate enough to have a coach that was so supportive. I told him what I was going to do. He said, all right, let's figure this out. And we started skimming the rule books Take me through that day because there's so much power in what you did, but there's also so much trauma. I had a bunch of anxiety for sure. Um, I had actually messaged Jordan um, a little bit after um, one of my warm-ups and I told her, like, I feel so crappy. Mm. I feel like my legs are heavy. My heart is heavy. Mm. My mind is clouded. Like, am I the right person for this? You know, maybe this is a sign that you know, maybe I'm not the right person for this type of advocacy. And Jordan mm. told me that this heaviness and these like, emotions 
are exactly the reason why I'm the right person to do this. Mm. Because we can't be numb to this tragedy or to this heartbreak. Mm. It's something that we're always going to carry with us, even when I'm doing something like running. Mm. Uh, so with that, I felt not necessarily stronger, but I felt accepting of what I was going through. Mm. And I decided to dedicate each of my races to a missing or murdered indigenous woman in my community. Mm. And I printed out uh, pictures of their missing persons poster. Wow. And I put it up illegally, but you mm. know, it's in the past, so what can they do now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, illegally by the, um, the results. So that every time somebody came to look at a result, they would see the four missing persons posters as well. Wow. Um, and I ran four races, so four women. And the first race was the mile. And I ran that for my aunt, Alice mm. Looney. Um, she went missing in Wapato mm. and in 2003. And she was found 15 months later um, deceased. And police never had answers for my family. And to this day, we don't know what happened to my aunt, Alice. And I ran and won the mile race for her. You won the mile race. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and um, with each medal I got, I would go and I would put it next to their poster. Mm. Um, also to just kind of draw attention to it. Um, and then another race was the 800 meter race, uh, who I ran for uh, Jackie Salyers, mm. who's a member of the Puyallup tribe and was shot and killed by Tacoma police when they were attempting to arrest her boyfriend. And she was pregnant at the time of her murder. Oh my goodness. And I won the 800 meter for Jackie. The third race was uh, for Renee Davis, who is really personal to me because Renee Davis was a member of the Muckleshoot community. I grew up with her and she was feeling um, depressed and suicidal. And so her family called a welfare check mm. and King County Sheriff um, shot her when they entered the home. Um, and she was also pregnant six months um, with who would have been my cousin, um, Masi Molina and her other two children were present. I won the two mile for Renee mm. and received the sportsmanship medal mm. um, for giving the girls water, which, you know, bare minimum thing to mm. do. Um, and that was a really special moment for me because I felt like that sportsmanship medal was like a smaller medal than the, the gold one, but it felt like that was Masi, you know, mm. the young. Um, wow. And that was like a pretty emotional moment for me, for sure. And that last race, it was the 400 meter race. So like not my race, it's kind of just something where I thought I would go, you know, all in. Mm. Um, and by that time I was so heavy and right before I got on that starting line um, my coach came up to me and he said you don't even have to tell me like I can see it all over you like you hurt in mm. every type of way I know like your legs hurt I know it, it hurts to move them but pick them up and he said but I, I know you don't care because what you're running for is so much more than just this medal mm. you're running for your sisters you're running for my daughters you're running mm. for indigenous women and girls everywhere Mm. Um, and I ran for Misty Upham, who was a uh, member of the Blackfeet Nation and a successful actress. And she was found um, deceased 
on the bottom of a ravine on the Muckleshoot Reservation when Auburn police did not look for her for 11 days and then mislabeled her death as a suicide. Mm. Uh, I came in second for the 400 meter with a personal best. You know, after a little bit, I almost felt regretful about not winning that mm. for Misty, but I also knew that I had ran a personal best and not to be too hard. Even though it felt like I had been doing the bare minimum for these women, based on how they deserved so much more than mm. just a recognition run, it was healing for me in the sense that this was the best that I could give to them now. Mm. And it was healing for their families as well. Yeah. Um, to be able to share their stories of their loved ones and also show that not only have I not forgotten, but I promise to make sure that no one else forgets as well. Mm. So that was um, one of the most actually impactful days of my life was my 2019 uh, state championships. I mean, hearing it, I, I, get, I get chills <laughs> thinking about just how powerful um, that experience was and the fact that you continue to speak these women's name. If there's one thing that I can do as an activist or even anybody can do is say their name and show not only the world, but even just their loved ones that mm. this grieving is not them alone. We are mm. all grieving and that's the least we can do is mm. grieve together. And this uh, cycle of violence is only a continued impact from the genocide and colonization of indigenous people. Mm. The forms of violence were used to weaken our communities, to target the women and two-spirit because we are matriarchal communities. Can you help me understand what are, what are two-spirit people? Yeah, so um, traditionally, indigenous gender isn't viewed in the binary that uh, colonization has led us to believe. Mm. Um, in um, traditional indigenous gender spectrums, there is feminine roles, masculine roles, and then there were also two-spirit people. Mm. There were masculine and feminine roles. Mm. And no matter your sex assigned at birth, whichever one you were good at, you were in. And mm. two-spirit people are especially um, sacred to our culture because they represent the duality of both feminine and masculine. Mm. They are in their own, almost like a third gender. Mm. And it is to represent a person who is balanced and who is very wise because they are so balanced with both mm. masculinity and femininity. Mm. And unfortunately, um, a lot of two-spirit people have had disconnections from their identity due to the erasure of colonization, of trying to enforce these binary gender roles onto mm. us. And it is our role, especially for myself as an activist, to ensure that two-spirit people are included in our activism because unfortunately, queer indigenous youth particularly are also exceptionally targeted for violence, mm. which is why it's so important to include Two-Spirit people mm. in our activism for preventing violence towards Indigenous people. There's so much more to the story, so keep listening. This episode is presented by Fleet Feet. Fleet Feet believes that running changes everything. We sell the shoes, apparel, and gear you need to get started. And we host fun runs, training groups, and events. Whether you're training for your first mile or your 50th marathon, we're here to run with you. Learn more at fleetfeet.com. I think what's really important is the connection between what's happened historically and what's happening now, right? Mm -hmm. The violence 
attempted genocide of the past is not just in the past. <laughs> Can you explain a bit more how you see that or how it is a continuation? Yeah, I would say that uh, one huge one is actually um, regarding the jurisdiction um, of crimes based mm. on tribal lands. Mm. As of right now, um, when a crime is committed towards a native person on a tribal reservation, the tribe has no jurisdiction over how the case is handled, mm. meaning that the U.S. government is responsible to come in and um, serve justice. However, that's just not happening. The requests for the federal government to come in on these cases of violence towards indigenous women are being declined. And what it means is that there is a loophole. There's for, no justice. Absolutely. Continuing the cycle of violence because there is no accountability. There's mm. no justice. And essentially the U.S. government is saying, you don't matter. Basically. And it's leaving indigenous women to fend for themselves. Mm. I've heard you say in the past that Pocahontas was the original missing, murdered indigenous girl. Could you share with me what that means? So Pocahontas was somewhere between 11 and 13 years old um, at the time that she met John Smith. Um, Pocahontas was captured and forcibly married and or sexually assaulted um, by John Smith, who took her as his wife, quote unquote, um, only to be um, eventually killed in captivity um, back in Europe. And she was the first recorded missing indigenous girl in our right, history. Not even woman, girl. Yeah, girl. Mm. And then only to see it in a Disney movie that Pocahontas was portrayed as a consensual um, young adult. It really shows that fetishization mm. that is towards indigenous women, that we are nothing but these sexual objects mm. to be desired. You'll even see it in, you know, Halloween is coming up. Mm. And I will assure you that there will be someone dressed as Pocahontas. Mm. And I never get to take that costume off. Mm. I will always be viewed in that exotic way mm. or in that sexualized way when really I am not consenting to that. Mm -hmm. Similar to how Pocahontas was not consenting to that marriage or to that relationship is the same with me. Why do you think the United States are so committed to this distortion of the truth, right? Why are we so committed to seeing indigenous people and women in this way? For me, that lack of truth and that distortion comes from avoiding accountability. Mm. If the U.S. were to truly come to terms with the atrocities that have been done to indigenous people and to indigenous women and two-spirit, there would be so much guilt. There would be the need and request for reparations, which would be completely valid. That restoring um, tribal sovereignty to show that we are the ones who can take care of ourselves. Uh, all of these things would be a, uh, like a valid request. Right. If we were to, as a country, acknowledge these atrocities. So after this powerful moment of you running and winning and speaking these women name where did your activism go from there so after i had kind of done that really what to me was like powerful but also 
you know, heavy um, day of racing, I had a retired um, Seattle Times reporter come up to me and he said, this, you know, this was really special and I'm going to make your story go viral. Mm. And I said, yeah, whatever, dude, I've <laughs> never met you before. I'm tired. I'm going to go home. And about a week later, I was on the front page of the Seattle Times. Sure enough. And that is probably what I saw you. <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness, who is this person? Amazing. Outside of being a runner and activist, you're also a student. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> How do you manage being a student, being a nationally, globally recognized figure? How do you keep it all together? Um, I'm really fortunate to have a super accommodating um, social system and um, when it comes to athletics and my academic system, everyone is super supportive. Um, they all acknowledge the fact that you know activism is something I'm super passionate about mm. and they also acknowledge the fact that all of these things about me, whether it be um, activism or academics or um, athletics, they're all intersectional mm. and I need every single one of them to do the work that I want to do. Wow. And you're not just, again, an average student. You are an excellent student, Truman Scholarship. So you, you, I had heard you speak about this disconnection from nature because of a lack of physical, emotional safety. Can you tell me what you mean by that? Muckleshoot Reservation is actually split by a highway running right through it. Uh, so there's not a ton of trails and um, nature paths on my actual reservation, meaning if I'm going to run, it's just going to be like along this small highway, mm. which isn't ideal. Um, but I never quite got the courage to go and find a trail further from home either. Mm. I didn't want to go out for a run and never come home. Mm. At least running in my community, even if it was on gravel or by a highway, I would get a honk and a wave, you know, every few minutes. Um, and that was to me showing like, I see you, you know, mm. I would know the last place where you were. And so that unfortunately deprived me mm. of a relationship to nature. Mm. While I still, of course, practice gratitude for the land. Yeah. I never really got that connection and I'm rebuilding that right now. Mm. That resonates with me so deeply, this idea of running while black, running while indigenous, running while female, really has impacted generations of people and their comfort in the outdoors. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's generational, for sure. And where I learned that outdoors isn't safe is from my mom and my mm. grandma, because they have been proven time and time again that it isn't for us. And mm. this was their method of protecting me. Mm. It's gotten to the point where when things were really dangerous, I almost felt the need to leave notes or let people know that if I, you don't find me or, you know, mm -hmm. if you do find me and I'm not here anymore, I never did it to myself. Wow. Because that's the common misconception. It's believed that we want to be missing or we don't want to be here anymore. That's devastating to yeah. hear that you have to predict your own death and just the, the weight of that, right? I think about, for me, running can be many things. When it's good, running is light, but the <laughs> burden of white supremacy, of sexism, of racism, it's literally a weight that you carry, right? So I feel this duality in the, the lightness and the beauty of a run, 
but then the weight of what the world sort of brings to it. Yeah, I remember being on a run um, on the Puyallup Reservation and I felt relatively safe because even though it wasn't my home, mm -hmm. um, it's the home of some of my siblings and um, some of my friends. And I felt really light. It was a beautiful day outside. Mm -hmm. I felt really good running and I was so grateful to be there until I got like a honk and like a wave and you know, someone like yelling about my pants mm. and like all of that came crashing down. Mm. And like suddenly I needed to get home now. I need mm. a change now um, and I need to disappear, you know? And mm. the way that being a woman mm. and a runner, those moments that are supposed to be blissful and peaceful just get stripped away from you. What are your hopes for your personal activism? How it impacts the MMIW2 spirit crisis? And then what are your hopes from the United States government and tribes um, as it relates to MMIW2 spirit? Um, for me, my personal goals with my activism is to be able to translate the needs of the MMIW2S families into legislation and policy. Mm. Um, here in Washington, we've seen the red alert get passed, which is a missing um, indigenous persons designation alert. Mm. Um, that is meant to prioritize um, a missing indigenous person, um, similar mm. to um, an Amber Alert. Alert. Yeah. Um, mm. And that was a huge success. And while it's still going to be a push to make sure that it's actually carried out, mm. um, it's a, a push in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And I hope to continue to contribute to those kinds of um, acts and legislation so that no indigenous family is left behind. Mm. Um, as for the um, United States government, restoring sovereignty back to tribes. You've mentioned Jordan several times. <laughs> what does that relationship with her look like now? Is it a friendship that you've continued? Yeah. Even though Jordan and I don't get to talk all the time because, oh my gosh, is she busy. Mm. But they have always been um, a role model to me and we get to touch base and every once in a while we even get to collaborate. Mm. Um, we got to do a lecture here at the University of Washington together and for the second time I got to see Jordan in person. Mm. It was like emotional in the best way and we are always keeping in touch on how we can support each other and I'm also just kind of cheering on her life in general. What is the connection between environmental degradation and the MMI W2S crisis? When extractive industries like pipelines and dams are built, they're often targeted on indigenous reservations. Mm. There has been actual studies done by the National Indigenous Women Resource Institute that found that when there is the presence of an extractive industry such as pipelines or dams, that there is a higher rate of violence towards the indigenous women in that area. And that is because when these industries come and exploit the land, they also bring in um, often labor camps, mm. which leads to strangers coming into our homes and our reservations. And what these people do when they're not working is they are committing acts of violence towards mm. the indigenous women. And we are left without justice. Oftentimes this is where that um, jurisdiction plays in mm. where the tribe has no authority over persecuting any non-native offender towards an indigenous woman mm. and in this violence against the earth is violence against women mm. with all of this on your mind and all the activism that you do how do you take care of yourself 
I am really fortunate to be within driving distance of my community. Mm. And so I'll usually just drive home and go see one of my billion siblings <laughs> or um, any of my parents. And I have like this place to be safe for a little bit. Mm. I've been able to also thankfully have access to uh, a therapist through being an athlete at the University of Washington. What are you most proud of? What made me most proud was um, speaking to um, a Tulalip family member and there was a young girl and she had been following my story for quite a long time mm. and she told me how um, Tulalip uh, Middle School started their girls cross-country team um, because they read about me. Wow. And I think that was, you know, the one moment where I gave it to my son and I was like, okay, you can feel good about this one, <laughs> you know. It's really powerful to see how your gifts, how your energy, your activism um, touches so many people. Thank you. I hope, you know, that's the least I can do because mm. I've been touched by so many people. Well, thank you for making an impact on me. Thank you for being <laughs> part of um, this series. I think as hard as we work, it's these connections are everything, right? Just as you say, you go back to your family to be restored. For me, it's really empowering and restorative to be around other people who are carrying those weights and sharing this burden and, and still pushing through. Yeah. Thank you. Can you share with me what the experience is like with your canoe family? Yeah. So we get to meet at the minimum once a week and we show up at like nine in the morning and no one is really like alive yet. <laughs> and you know, we're probably like trying to convince each other to like stop and get coffee and get mm. breakfast. We basically get all geared up. We put on our life jackets and we grab our paddles and water bottles. And um, I take basically my whole family and we all get on this canoe with um, a bunch of other canoe family members who have been my family since as long as I can remember. Mm. And we all get on the canoe together and it's very spiritual for mm. all of us. But at mm. the same time, it's so lightweight and fun because mm. we have that bond, not only with each other, but with the canoe and the water itself. My people, the Muckleshoe and Khaled's people, um, traveled by the waters. I mean, our lives revolved around um, the ocean and the rivers. It's what gave us life. Mm and we are able to practice the what we call the um, traditional highways mm. which are the um, oceans and we can travel in our canoes and we go up and down the sound mm. and it's it's really hard literally backbreaking work it is uh, it'll leave you sore mm. it, it starts burning in the first five seconds and it doesn't stop <laughs> till like hopefully you know by the 20 minute mark it should be kind of gets a little numb but the fact that it's so difficult it's like I have that privilege mm. to be practicing this and to be going through that that pain and it's the closest thing I have to prayer I think the real spirituality part comes from experiencing some of the same hardships that our ancestors did mm. we are following in their footsteps mm. and uh, carrying on that tradition mm. even though it's a little painful mm. um, it comes to actually appreciating that pain and understanding that this is where our ancestors came from and by sacrificing, you know, a little bit of work, mm. we keep these traditions alive and we stay connected and reclaim um, our waters. 
and to do it with a family, a community of people that matter to you. Yeah, when I get on, you know, the canoe and I get ready to go out in the water, I have my family in that canoe. Slow down, Even the, the youngest one, my little sister, and she's usually, you know, up there with me. Probably sitting on my feet with her life jacket. <laughs> no. Not helping. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I see you. Oh my goodness. You mentioned that the hardship, the pain and hardship of canoeing connects you to your ancestors. Would you say that part of the hardship of your ancestors is this MMIW2S? Is there a connection between what happens when you're moving on a canoe and your activism? Yeah. One thing about the activism for MMIW2S and the Muckleshoot Canoe family is that in both ways we are inspired by the sacrifice and the strength of the ancestors before us mm. and knowing that we are following in their footsteps and that we would not be where we are today if not for their strength and um, their movements. If you want to continue adventuring with me and dive deeper into this story, check out the show notes. There, you'll find links to the video series and an article I wrote about the themes of this episode. This podcast is hosted and reported by Allison Mariella Desir. That's me. My producer is Brooklyn Jamerson Flowers. The executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. Audio production from Bryce Y. Adolfson and Sarah E. Hall. And audio support from Rusty Bogal and Seth Halloran. You can subscribe to Out and Back wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It helps create excitement around a new show. And if you'd like to support the work we do at CrossCut, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to on-demand programming from KCTS 9, Seattle's PBS station. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Out and Back is a product of Cascade Public Media. Next time, we're leaving Washington and taking the adventure to Portland.